thank you so much for listening again this week, for downloading the podcast and for being so faithfully a part of the conversation. I'm Deanna Fletcher and in fact, today is our last for the year. So I'm particularly excited to have your company as I unveil who this week's conversation is with, a woman who's been right at the front of women in ordination for a number of years and a person who truly has a passion for the people. Right Reverend Libby Lane was the first woman to be appointed as a bishop by the Church of England after its General Synod voted in July 2014 to allow women to become bishops. Her consecration took place in January 2015 at York Minister when she became the Bishop of Stockport, a suffragan bishop in the Diocese of Chester. In more recent news and after our meeting took place, she's been elected the Diocesan Bishop of Derby. The service to install Bishop Libby in Derby Cathedral will take place in the new year. So there's a lot for her to look forward to and there's certainly a lot for us to delve into as we explore women in ministry, in leadership and self-care as well as caring for others and of course bring a few thoughts and reflections for Christmas time. So keep listening. Our conversation took place in her rather cosy office not far from the historic Dunham Massey. Thank you very much for your time. I'm delighted to uh, be with you. It's lovely well, to no, see I'm you. Well, no, I'm with you. It's this beautiful location that we happen to be in. Explain to me where we are and what's so historic about this site, because it comes with the post. It comes with the post. So uh, we're just outside Altrincham uh, in South Trafford, uh, in the home and office of the Bishop of Stockport. Which is yourself. Which is me now. Um, uh, So I became Bishop of Stockport nearly four years ago, and the location comes with the job. And it's a beautiful location. It is a very beautiful location. Well, tell me how you came to faith. I came to faith as a child, uh, coming from a a family that didn't go to church and uh, wouldn't profess uh, a a living faith, a Christian faith. Um, And I was invited to church by a friend who lived in the next village along from me in North Derbyshire. And so I went along. And that church family in that little village situation in North Derbyshire loved me into faith. Um, They kind of adopted me as a child turning up to church on my own and they told me about Jesus and they taught me how to pray and prayed for me and opened the scriptures for me and loved me. So they were a sign for me of God's love and um, I'm deeply grateful for that village church community. That's lovely. What a lovely way to come into faith as well. Would you say that you'd bring a similar approach having had that experience into your work as a minister? I think what I've learned from my own lived experience is that it really matters that people are given attention and valued and honoured, that the kingdom of God only ever grows an individual at a time and that That's the way God works, that God deals with us as precious, treasured individuals. And God's invitation to us in Christ is is ours. It's named. One of the lovely things as a bishop that I do in the Church of England is to confirm people, which is when um, young people and adults get to a stage in their own journey with Jesus where they want to publicly affirm their faith and have the church pray that that faith is confirmed. 
I get to do that as bishop. And part of that is with every individual who comes for confirmation, um, I get to say a part in the service which speaks their name and says, if it was me, would say, Libby, God has called you by name. And I think that's really important. That's the way God works. And so that's the way we should engage with people as Christians, as a Christian minister in my case, with people as individuals who are precious. Mm. How did you know you wanted to become a minister? When did that start? Well, from coming to know Jesus and making the choice to follow Jesus, um, all the choices that I've made in my life have been in that context. And so from being an adolescent, my question has been, um, God has given everything for me how can I give my life back to God? Now, when I was growing up, women couldn't be ordained as priests in the Church of England. Um, so I didn't consider that as a teenager because that wasn't an option open to me. But I knew that whatever I did, it was going to be in response to God's love for me. Um, when I was growing up, um, I trained as a dancer. Um, so I did dance training for 15 years. Um, but I got to um, 17 and 18 and realised that um, I, was, I was good, um, but I was never going to be exceptional. Um, and I had a, a couple of injuries, so I knew I wasn't going to do that. I then did, studied to do what I needed to do to be an engineer. Um, I wanted to be a civil engineer. I wanted to build bridges and roads. Um, and, and you do that now. Well, you build a bridge well, for people to find Thank you very much. I, I guess in, in a kind of metaphorical kind of way, do. I do. But actually, um, I, I'm not a bishop. I'm a failed civil engineer. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> that's... Um, uh, I still love bridges. Um, uh, but it became apparent that actually, um, after doing maths A-level, that I did not want to spend my life um, doing maths. So I went to university to study what I was interested in, which was theology... Um, and it was while I was at university that I had introduced to me the idea that maybe ordination was what um, God was asking me to do with my life. Um, and I began to explore that. But I, had, I had that affirmed by the church, that vocation was recognised by the church, and I was sent after graduation to what the Church of England calls Theological College, kind of vicar school, to train to be a vicar, before the legislation was passed that would allow me to do that. So I went in hope um, and in faith that, um, I would, uh, that, that, was go that that opportunity was going to happen. And the legislation did happen while I was at, at training college. So I was among the first... Well, I was that first wave of women who were able to be selected and trained and ordained alongside their male peers without having to wait. That was 25 years ago. That's incredible. And you have been a part, you have been at the forefront of women moving forward in ordination and in the Church of England from the sounds of it ever since the beginning. Um, was that ever part of your dream of making a way for other women and being the first or was it just a no, happy it, accident? It, 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 it is a happy accident. I mean, it is genuinely a happy accident for me. Um, my desire was to be faithful to God's call on my life. Um, 
And although I was among the first to step through that uh, door to be women priests, and I was the first to be able to step through the door as a woman bishop, um, I, it wasn't me that that is responsible for the work that God is there. There are countless women and men over uh, only decades, um, centuries, who have struggled and worked and prayed and um, worked so that at the point when actually I was ready to open their door, the door had been unlocked um, uh, by the faithfulness of, of other people. As you were exploring this, though, in your younger years, um, and you had a dream and you wanted to be faithful with the calling that God had put on your heart, however, it wasn't allowed for you to become the minister that you are today. So were you ever faced with people saying, well, no, that's not possible and you can't do that? And if so, how did you deal with being told no? I did have to face being told no. When I started the journey, uh, it was no, that that there wasn't the option to do that. Um, And I chose to step out on the journey anyway and to be as faithful as far as the church would allow. And that's a combination of... Uh, and what came first was people around me recognising gifts in me and giving me opportunity to exercise those and encouraging me to um, continue to grow and to develop those and to offer them. And out of that encouragement and opportunity and challenge grew the conviction in me that this was God's call to me and that's always been the case when faced with either an institutional it's not possible or individual um, we don't agree with this happening or you doing that causes me pain and anger Um, and I think it's wrong and that does happen that has happened you know for three four decades in my life and um, for many around me, um, and sometimes that is that can be painful. Of course, it's difficult to be faced with people who don't recognise in you the things that others have seen or the things that you believe is true for yourself. Of course, that's painful. Uh, but honestly, it's never been for me. It has not ever been um, damaging or or debilitating because my security comes from being known and named and loved by God in Christ and the security that comes from that, that's at the heart and what comes out of that is, is just extra and gift and, um, and beyond that. And because those negative responses have been extraordinarily outweighed by the affirmation and encouragement and delight that that individuals and the church as an institution um, have offered me um, around my call and my ministry. Um, so the combination of those things, that sense of security that lies in my identity as a follower of Jesus, um, the affirmation that the church and individuals in it Um, give me in my exercise of ministry the conviction I have personally that I am being faithful to God in this means I can face I hope with grace 
those for whom it is difficult. Mm. With grace, I like that. Have you um, felt the need to, in your journey and facing negativity and facing criticism, because uh, there are plenty of people who still disagree with women being in positions of leadership within the church, and I guess the argument there is more governing over men that some often have the issue with, but have you explored for yourself what the Bible has to say about women in ministry and what does, in your view, the Bible say about women in positions of leadership and governance over men? Over four decades of following Jesus, the Bible has been at the heart of my faith. Um, Through the reading of scripture, I came to know Jesus. Um, It remains um, at the heart of my daily discipline. I read the Bible every day and I pray that I may, the spirit may work to open me to what God is teaching me through the scriptures. I read the scriptures together with other people. I preach from the scriptures. It is right at the heart of what I understand it is to be a Christian and to discover God in my own life and um, for the life of the church and the world. So I take the Bible really seriously. Reading scripture means that I see a God who chose to create humanity, male and female, equally in his image. I see a God who chose to share his, uh, his image and his glory and his purpose equally with men and women to exercise stewardship and to be fruitful equally with women and men. The story of scripture, I read God raising up and gifting women um, to exercise all kinds of roles, including those of leadership and transformation and challenge, um, to exercise priestly and prophetic roles in the company of God's people. Um, I see those women in scripture. So I don't think I'm doing anything that is contrary to scripture or that I don't discover in scripture myself. I see Jesus' relationship with and through women in working out the salvation of the world um, honours the place of women among the people of God um, the first to bear Christ for the world was a woman. Mm. Um, the first to share the news of the resurrection was a woman. Mm. The New Testament speaks of women um, exercising roles of, of leadership alongside men, women leading uh, communities of Christians um, in their own right and alongside men. I read in scripture that in Christ there is no longer male and female. Um, so I see a thread through scripture that leads to where I am now. Um, and that's uh, a gift to me. I'm, it's a real honour to be part of that story um, and a continuation of that journey. Well, when you heard that you might become the first woman bishop, 
What was your first thought? And knowing, of course, that other women women would be able to follow in your footsteps, which they have. There are, what, 16 now female uh, Yes, yes. Well, there have been 17 appointed, um, uh, but uh, Emma it will be um, consecrated bishop um, in the new year, um, and that will make it 17. So... And that is just wonderful. That's absolutely wonderful that um, that the door that I opened, my sisters have been able to walk <laughs> through. That's absolutely fabulous. So your question was, what did I what did I think when that opportunity first came to me? Um, that was, I mean, I think that was as much a surprise to me as it was to the rest of the world when it was announced. There was a great big Libby who. When, when that was announced. I know that um, the church and the nation and the world knew that the Church of England was working towards that point. And, um, and there was speculation about who the first may be and there were extraordinarily gifted and experienced women that had been named and suggested who might be um, the first. And um, nobody had heard of me. Why would they have done um, and so when I when I was announced, there was that um, that kind of who is who is this who's uh, who's going to do this, and there was that sense in me too when that was first raised when I was first asked to um, apply to be part of the discernment process um, about the appointment of the next bishop of Stockport. That same sense of of um, uh, who am I that the rest of the world had a kind of who is she when it, when it happened? There was similarly that continuing sense of this is something that the church is rec- has recognised in me and is asking of me, not something I've put myself forward for. You can't apply to be a bishop, so you have to be invited to do it. So that sense of this is something that others have identified in me and are asking of me. Um, and for up to that point, you know, 30, 35 years, my daily prayer is, how can I be faithful to you today, Jesus? And so when the invitation comes, part of the who am I is, I am Christ's. And if this is what Christ's church is asking of me, I must be faithful in saying, okay, well, let's test this. It never occurred to me that there's so much now in the world, it feels like, people are appointed by celebrity culture so what's popular is what's and what people have heard of is what uh, people take notice of or decisions are made based on your popularity it never occurred to me that that could be a thing within the church of england or i suppose it, it exists within church structures for sure for you to say who'd heard of me <laughs> it's it's actually refreshing to hear because it obviously sounds like the work and the appointment and the invitation was based on merit and character and um who you were as a person and the work that everyone else had seen you do how can we continue to honor people as you mentioned earlier by recognizing who they are not based on necessarily being so achievement driven or popularity driven as a lot of our culture is today uh, thank you I, I really hope that that was the the situation around um, my call to hold this role um and i do think it is it is important and it's part of what i was speaking of earlier about giving attention to the individual and i think that is part of that answer how do we do that is to be attentive um 
is to really see the person that is in front of you um, rather than, as you say, be swayed by public opinion necessarily or not that public is, that's wrong, but not to necessarily be swayed by that or the people who have the grandest title or the, um, uh, the most exposure. But that takes attention. You, you have to work at that. It's harder work to, um, to be uh, diligent and careful and attentive to people um, than it is to go with the flow. Um, uh, so I, I, I would hope that the church is able to embody that which, again, I read in scripture, which is that God looks at the heart, um, not at the outward appearance. Um, so actually, it doesn't matter how attractive we are or, you know, how... Um, many followers uh, you might uh, have on Instagram. On or, Instagram or all those yeah. things. Um, God looks at the heart, and I would hope that the church is able to do that too it does matter that you can do the job well that does matter um but it's not always the obvious people who are the people who will do the job well. and because we're so busy all the time sometimes i think we get tunnel vision because of stress and we're very busy and actually like you said it takes time to focus on the individual but i feel like that's what jesus would do it seems from scripture that jesus made the time that was needed first for him to be attentive to his heavenly father so that he had um the what was needed to be able to see with the father's love and i think that is really important for those of us who would want to uh, be faithful followers of Jesus, that we first and foremost are attentive to God and that we give the space and the time to, for God to work on us and in us so that God can then work through us and that we give God's attention to those with whom we have to do, those among whom God places us. Yeah. How do you create space? Because you're the Bishop of Stockport, you have a busy job, you're responsible for people, you have a family, you are a wife, you are a parent. We hear a lot now about meditation, we hear a lot about taking biblical retreats, and there's lots of different ways that people are discussing of how we can have a holistic approach to looking after ourselves. So how do you create space and take time? Thank you. I think that is that is really important. Um, one of the things I do is to work really hard not to talk about or have other people talk about me being busy, because busy sounds like a bad thing. Um, so you're right, my life is very full. Um, um, Why is busy a bad thing? Just that's a really good question. I don't know, but it does. Ha- it has those connotations if because it tends to mean. You're too busy for me. Yes, I understand. When people say, I know you're busy, there tends to be an undercurrent that means, so you're probably too busy for me. A bit apologetic and a um, bit... Yeah. So I try and talk about, if I'm, if I'm talking about um, uh, kind of what, how my life is made up, is that my life is full. And actually, for the most part, that's really stimulating and interesting and rewarding um, and fruitful. Um, and I'm the kind of person who, in the best possible way, actually likes to be 
busy. I like doing lots of things at once. That I'm fed by that. Um, uh, but it is also important that I that I make space primarily to be attentive to God, also to give myself time to recuperate and rest and prepare, that I give space to my family and my friends. Um, my day begins... Well, actually, actually, my day begins by uh, staggering out of bed and uh, <laughs> <laughs> emptying and reloading the dishwasher and <laughs> putting on All a load of washing things. and making a cup of tea and, and um, uh, taking it to my husband. Every time I say that, um, uh, uh, households um, that, that hear it kind of glare at each other with one spouse or another saying, look, she gets up and gives her husband a cup of tea. Why don't you? I don't mean that. It just happens that that's the way that works. Um, for us, but my uh, kind of my working day, as it were, um, begins with the discipline of daily prayer, um, uh, and that I'm I'm blessed that I have the kind of job and a place to live and work in that means I can make sure that space is there. So every day begins for me with uh, what the Church of England calls the daily office. Um, which is a, a shape of prayer that includes uh, Bible readings and the Psalms and a cycle of prayer um, uh, for those for whom I'm responsible and for the nation and the world. Um, so that space is part of my daily routine. Um, I also have uh, the freedom to be able to create space in my diary so that I can do things like... Um, go on retreat a couple of times a year so take the inside of a week to I go and stay with some nuns in a convent in Whitby um, and have longer periods of silence and space but again that's a real gift for me not everybody can carve that space out of their lives and in fact I've not been able to do it at every stage of my life um, when my children were much younger and more dependent it's not possible to to do that those kinds of things so um there's been different rhythms of how I have used space to be with God that have changed over my lifetime. I do work really hard to make sure that I have um, a, a clear day off every week. I know I need space to recuperate and to recharge. And I'm guessing for you that isn't a Sunday. It is not a Sunday. Because a lot no, of Christians would take Sunday as their day off, Absolutely. but they spend the whole day in church. Yes. Um, so I think, and I think that's really important when we work with people who who are living their faith in in other jobs or in other circumstances who aren't clergy, that we recognise that if people's Sundays are taken off with, with church, actually it's really important that they too have space to be with their families and their friends and, and, and by themselves so that and it's important for, I think, that I as bishop model that for clergy who can then model that for other people. Um, so uh, I need space for myself. Um, I love people, but they make me tired. <laughs> so I know I need time on my own. So I make find space to do that. I find space to be able to do things that make me happy. 
with my husband and with my family and with my friends. So we might go to the cinema or the theatre or go to an art gallery. Um, see or, some dance, or, perhaps. Do see some dance when I can, <laughs> absolutely. Um, I love sport, so I like watching and, and reading about sport. I like cooking. I like um, offering hospitality. So I find things to do that make me happy. Um, you know that that refresh me and revive me. I mean, but I want to go back to. I know that I'm really. That's a blessing for me, that that I have the freedoms to be able to shape my life like that. Um, and for other people, the patterns of their lives um, make that more difficult, and they need to. They would need to find different ways of being able to carve out moments of space and quiet and and finding things that they love which would be very different from mine it kind of doesn't matter what it is if it's a thing that make that gives you joy then um then that's a good thing and i would want to encourage people to to do that jesus came to offer life in all its fullness that sounds like a joyous thing to me so if if we as Christians, and particularly as ministers, are living life in ways that suggest it's a slog and you're weighed down, you're too busy to enjoy, that doesn't seem like a, a very good model. No, and that's brilliant. Thank you for that, because we can, like you said, it might look different on different people, but we can carve out space we could find that small space of time to either be still with God or something that makes us happy. We've all worked alongside people or maybe served under church leadership where the person is obviously perhaps stressed or just doesn't have time for themselves and you feel that. So you'll actually be a better leader and a better minister and bring more to people, I think, if you, find, if you can find a little bit of time. I think that's you. certainly true in terms of patterns of leadership and what I would want to be encouraging in our in our clergy, but I think that's just true for people. People, yeah. Um, but but again, that will take very different shapes for different people in different circumstances. And the last thing that I would want to be heard saying is that. You know, if you're not able to take whole days or to, you know, go away for days on retreat or whatever um, works for me at the moment, if you're not doing that, that just adds to your sense of guilt and burden. Of course. Um, but you can start maybe with your lunch break or ask God, hey, how can I find As space? you were saying earlier um, uh, about if we were, if you feel stressed, doesn't it help? to be in this environment and simply look out the window. Um, and you don't have to be in a beautiful place in the countryside, literally taking a minute to look at the sky or to look at a tree and to see that. Um, research from other areas other than the theological um, suggests that that's true. Um, and it turns out that um, uh, God's patterns of, of Sabbath and rhythms of life and rest and rec recreation work. Yes. Um, and other disciplines recognise that. So I don't think this is just about church life or, or just for ministers. Mm. Um, uh, I, I think that these things are true for people and for the earth. You know, that... that, that that looking after the earth well also recognises that that not kind of working it so that all the goodness is 
drained out of it and that's true for our lives as well Mm, okay well one of the other interesting facts about your life is that you and your husband both work in ministry and in fact you're among the first married couples to be appointed by the church of england which is pretty cool so how do you support one another in such demanding public roles uh, probably, honestly, less well than we should. <laughs> um, I mean, we've been we've been married for um, uh, for twenty eight years, and we've been in public ordained ministry for twenty five years. So, um, we've had a while to kind of work at this, um, and again, the shape of that. Is has been different at different stages of our lives and at different stages of our as our, of our ministries, um, and there have been different times over those decades when we've made choices that has allowed one or other of us to, um, you know, the decisions to for one of us to take a role that has meant the rest of the household has moved with them and at other times it's been the other one of us that's made those choices and and they've moved with them so that's um ebbed and flowed um around how that has worked um we need to keep reminding ourselves that we have responsibility for one another as people as well as for our ministries and for the public work we do and as much as anybody else and particularly those who are in public Christian ministry it's all too easy for us to not to be attentive to one another because we are so committed to the ministry of service that we have to to other people and so we do have to keep reminding ourselves of that my husband's ministry now for example as coordinating chaplain of Manchester airport I think is extraordinary they do remarkable work of the kingdom of God in ways that my ministry of bishop as bishop just can't do I don't get to do those extraordinary things on the boundaries of people's lives um, that are right where God is, right on the margins, working with asylum seekers and those who are being deported and those who are being trafficked and those who are victims of sexual exploitation and the homeless and the bereaved. Extraordinary work of God in an unexpected place and with people who are largely invisible to the rest of society. I really honour my husband's ministry. It's extraordinary, the work that he and his colleagues do. So in terms of wanting to support that ministry, um, that's easy. It, it's, it's, it's extraordinary work for God. And I want to make sure that he flourishes in that and that that work can, can flourish there. Um, uh, he's been wonderfully, wonderfully supportive and encouraging and loyal and delighted for me in my ministry um, uh, and that's been a really important part of what enables me to do it and to do it well if I do do it well um, we've had a long time to work at this um, and we're going to have to keep working at it we don't get it right all the time absolutely don't get it right all the time but we're committed to each other and we're committed to our vocations and somehow, by the grace of God, we sort of work it out as it's we go. It's working. I love it. 
Well, let's turn our attention to Christmas. Yes. Uh, before we end today's conversation, we are approaching the season, as we it were. Are approaching or the some season. would say we're well and truly in the season. So let me ask you, what are you mindful for this Christmas? Or what tends to be your reflection um, for the Christmas season that you would really focus on? I've been reflecting um, in the run-up to Christmas this year around the idea of generosity. Um, I think that um, at the heart of Christmas is that idea of of being generous, of God's extraordinary generosity in setting aside his glory and majesty and taking on our flesh um, and being brought to birth um, in a stable. That's a, a extraordinary, world-changing, life-changing act of generosity. And to return to that idea of generosity, of kind of self-giving generosity for the good of others, I think is a really important context in which we consider the ways that um, uh, giving is lived out in the way that a kind of 21st century Western world does Christmas. Um, and one of the things that that uh, reminds me of is that the, that generosity is about love, not stuff. Um, uh, and so, trying to remind people that um, a good Christmas doesn't have to involve stuff and the uh, and expense of ways that can be damaging um, and that I and those who um, belong to Christ and live in the church to, to try and make that re- live that out particularly in the Christmas season um, is really important so one of the things that is happening in um, our diocese is the mo- at the moment is uh, an initiative called Filling the Gap which is about churches responding to the gap that there is in families' lives during school holidays. So for families whose children might receive free school meals during term time, that holidays can be extraordinarily difficult. And if the holiday is Christmas and there's all that expectation of what should be provided at Christmas... um, then the the burden of of expense and potentially crippling debt is is really damaging, and so um, a number of our churches in our diocese and across the region are committing to providing um, healthy, happy, nourishing food for children and their families during the day during school holidays um, in the hope that that act of generosity can relieve the burden for some of those who uh, might otherwise uh, be really damaged by the expectations that there are around Christmas. So I think that idea of generosity um, and what that looks like in practice in 21st century Britain That's wonderful. Well, before I let you go, let me ask you, how can we be praying for you in the work that you do? Uh, uh, Thank you so much. That's such an encouragement to to have that asked. Um, I think the prayers that I would ask for is that um, I can be faithful to the one who is faithful 
to me um, and what that looks like today and that um, I am given the grace to do that well day day by day Um, and that I make the most of the opportunities like this of being able to talk to you, um, to speak of Jesus and to share the story, his story in my life um, and to hopefully point others towards him, whether that's in the words that I say or the actions that I take through my leadership as a bishop. And I need your prayers um, that God will stir up that grace in me so that I do that well today. And as you pray for me tomorrow, that I will do it again tomorrow. And for many more years to come. Thank you very much Thank indeed. you very much for your time. Real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. My thanks to Bishop Libby Lane for speaking with me today and sharing such insight on self-care as well as caring for others. Truly love is the ultimate gift to share this Christmas and I hope you'll pass it on and pay it forward. And can I just take a moment to say thank you so much for listening throughout the year. It's been a real joy and privilege that you would be a part of the conversation and it's my hope that the topics we've delved into and insight that's been shared helps you on your journey. There's a lot more to come in the new year, but for now, thank you so much for being a part of the conversation and have a very Merry Christmas.